Welcome to the Nature Back podcast, where we are talking about climate change and the green economy. My name is Tarmo Virki, and today I'm speaking with Alejandro Jimenez, investment head at Estonian green tech firm Grünfin. Uh, welcome to Nature Back, Alejandro. Thank you very much. Nice to hear you. Uh, what is Grünfin? So Grünfin is an investing platform for individuals and now businesses who want to invest sustainably. Um, so the idea is to help them achieve market-based returns, um, and yet at the same time, invest in companies that are doing good things for the planet and, and its people. So essentially, we build portfolios of uh, ETFs, exchange-traded funds, um, in, that uh, are investing themselves in companies that are doing good things for the climate, uh, for equality, and for healthcare innovation. What's the reason for using the ETFs? Yeah, so ETFs, it's, it's a matter of uh, one, diversification, which helps lower the overall risk of a, of a portfolio, right? You don't have all the eggs in one basket, which allows you to start with small amounts if, if need be. Um, the fees are, are very low on, on ETFs as well. And then the beauty of ETFs is that now, as sustainability becomes a, a, a bigger uh, trend, there's some really good instruments out there that, that we can purchase. For example, on the, on the climate side, um, any customer who picks a climate portfolio with us, we only invest in ETFs that are aligned to the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement is this momentous accord from 2015, where I believe it's 196 countries came together and uh, agreed on something. Now, think of today trying to get 196 countries to agree on anything. So back, back then it was momentous and they agreed, they acknowledged that global warming is a problem. So that's awesome. Let's, let's set mm. that standard. And from that base, they then said, okay, and the solution is then to get to net zero emissions by the middle of the century. And that's how we save the planet from, from excess heating. Um, and so now as, as governments have adopted the, the Paris Agreement, then the whole idea is for that to be a framework that then trickles down to communities, to cities, to companies, etc. So now you have a bunch of companies that are themselves aligned to this goal of getting to zero emissions by, by 2050. And as per the European Commission regulation, um, there's these, um, ETFs that can align themselves to this uh, agreement, basically investing in companies that are themselves aligned, obviously. But the rules are that the ETF as a whole needs to have 50% less carbon intensity than the overall stock market, and that the ETF as a whole needs to reduce the carbon intensity every year by 7%. And that's essentially how you get to zero by, by 2050. Mm. So wow. that's pretty cool. And 7% a year sounds quite a lot to me. It, it's ambitious, um, but it's the way each government needs to do as well to get down to, to zero by 2050, mm. essentially. I'm not that familiar with the world of ETFs. Is there enough of them? Are they specific enough? Do you have actually... Do you have to actually have a choice of the ETFs for the climate investments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's quite a wide um, variety of them. And ETFs have really um, gained uh, an enormous amount of volume in, in, in the past years 
basically because when ETFs follow an index passively, right, mm. a, a stock index, it's been proven that single stock picking, so fund managers that actually try to select a few number of stocks, they tend to do poor, poorly compared to the ETF or therefore the, the stock index. In fact, when you look at the data, if you go back 20 years, um, even less than that, 15 or 10 years, um, roughly 80 to 90% of fund managers who do stock picking actually underperform the stock index. 80 to 90%. Stock picking is hard. It's very hard. So we want to get away from that because uh, we, we, want, we feel we've created that wonderful balance of investing sustainably, but also making sure that our customers have actual financial returns. Um, and uh, the ETF is, is the way to go. It's definitely at least, uh, maybe, maybe in the future when you're 100 times bigger or 1,000 times bigger, then, then maybe it's uh, some other instruments, but I think it's probably a very, sounds like a very reasonable kind of uh, way to come to the market. It, it is, it is. And, and for, for those, maybe some listeners who are not aware of exactly what, um, what an ETF is. So essentially it's, um, a fund that pulls a bunch of money from different investors that, who invest in the stock market. So it pulls all those funds. And then with those funds, it buys all the underlying companies that represent, uh, an index. So the, the most famous indexes call it the S&P 500. It's, it's not sustainable, but it's the most famous index. It, it tracks the 500 largest companies in the, in the U.S. So essentially, if you went out and bought this on your own, you would need to buy 500 different companies. That's, you need a lot of money. There's a lot of fees, a lot of transactions, etc. But the ETF, I mean, if you want to invest, I don't know, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, uh, you essentially gain exposure to all these 500 companies in the corresponding weights of those companies in the index. So that revolutionized. Actually, the ETF is having its 30th birthday this week. Um, so it's really cool. And over time, then a bunch of new ETFs have come, including these, these climate ones that I mentioned. Mm. Um, often when people talk about environment and money, they seem to be like the, I don't know, the two sides of the same coin or, or rather different from each other. Um, often you hear the environmentalists saying that money is bad and you maybe not so often anymore, but you hear the kind of people running capitalist companies saying that we are here for the profit and, you know, if the environment, right? So how do you see this balance between the kind of environment and money developing? Yeah, well, as, as long as they're aligned, right? You, you, you need both. And uh, part of the whole, you know, the way the EU is implementing the, the Paris Agreement through the um, uh, EU Green Deal is basically saying we want to get a lot of investment into these greener companies in order to help them assist with the transition towards a, mm. a, a net zero environment. So literally, I forget the exact number, but, but trillions of dollars and euros need to invest it every year into new technologies, into helping companies um, invest in, in, in new operations to achieve this goal. So, I mean, at least from the EU perspective as a, as, as a government and, and regulator, they are very focused on getting the money 
uh, in, and the money's there. It's just a matter of allocating it to the to the right places. Mm-hmm. What can an investor do to make the world greener? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's multiple ways. If um, one is the startup world, it's it's not how our customers invest, but you know, I'm technically in a startup. You're in a startup, and and. Uh, you know, investors who have helped fund us then are pushing for these new companies to make change, uh, right? So that's pretty cool. And there's a ton of, of that. Um, money can go into research, into grants, into different initiatives. Governments can help subsidize loans, um, create green funds for, for investing. Uh, and in terms of the, um, the larger corporations, you can always invest in companies that are heading in the right direction, but there's also shareholder voting. So if if you're not satisfied with what a company is doing, one of these bigger companies, you can always exercise that vote. Of course, if you only hold one share of a company, then then you may feel powerless, you may feel it's it's not worth the time. But something really cool that we're doing at Grundfin on behalf of our of our customers is investor activism. So essentially, we look at um, larger companies that have a huge impact on the world and whom we think if they make a change for good, the impact is going to be enormous, enormous. So one example is is, uh, we deal a lot with Unilever. So they're the giant uh, consumer goods company from the UK. Every day, roughly 2 billion people be with Billion with a B, two billion people buy their products every day um, or consume their products. And so we've engaged with them because they claim and they've showed it, they've showed that they have been to be a highly sustainable company. And for years they've been they've been saying this. There's a great book that their former CEO Paul Pullman wrote called um, Net Positive. It talks about over the years during the 2010s, he tried to instill this culture of sustainability into everywhere in, in Unilever. So we engage with them because we know they they want to. Um, so one initiative was um, the healthiness of their consumer products and foods and, and drinks is not very good. And, uh, you know, looking at the theme of health, which is something that, that we at Grunfin invest in. So... You know, malnutrition and obesity is a worldwide problem. So these huge consumer goods companies have a huge responsibility in terms of how they feed people with all their distribution channels. So we engage with them to tell them, listen, independent studies show that, you know, your products are unhealthy at all. Um, How about you, first of all, Unilever, become the first of these major corporations to actually you disclose how healthy your products are? We have third-party research, but we're not hearing it from, from Unilever themselves. So how healthy are your products? And then two, set targets, ambitious targets to increase the healthiness of these products. And we're very proud that in, in October of last year, this is all public information, so you can find it on the web. They, for the first time, or the first major company to disclose how healthy their products are using different government benchmarks. And they also set targets to increase um, that healthiness. So we did this all through activism by engaging through the, their senior management team. Now, 
we at Grundfin, we don't have the size to influence management on our own, just as an individual investor doesn't, not yet. The more we are, the better. But so what we do is then we joined a coalition of similar thinking investors. So as a group, we had the size to all sit down at the table and get a meeting with Unilever and tell this is what you should be doing. Um, so we work very closely with a charity in the UK called Share Action. And we go to them and we say, okay, yeah, we want to increase the healthiness of products. And they'll be like, okay, yeah, I know there's a, this pension fund that is thinking similar to you. There's this other asset manager that's thinking similar to you. So, all right, let's, get, let's all get together and, and figure out how to do this. Um, so we've done that for Unilever. We're doing it for Nestle right now as, as well. Nestle, it's a bit different because what we did is we went out and bought a share ourselves with Grunfin's own money, not customer money. Mm-hmm. Um, and this gets us a right to then submit a shareholder resolution at their next shareholder meeting, mm-hmm. um, requesting that they do the same. And uh, Nestle has come back and said, before you submit the resolution, let's talk. Maybe we can figure out uh, a mm-hmm. solution. And, and everybody wins. It's much of better course. than taking it because then it shows that Nestle truly cares rather than doing it because they feel forced, because there was a shareholder voting that took place. And listen, these, these gigantic corporations, they get a, a, a bad reputation, sometimes rightfully so. But at the end of the day, inside those companies are people. They're human beings. Um, they have the same worries that we do. Um, they have sustainability departments where I truly believe those people want to make a change. A lot of times they can't because of bureaucracy, inertia, lack of information, lack of know-how, knowledge. But when you speak to them one-on-one, they, they, they're very engaged and we're seeing change as it, as it happens. So That's a positive development. Yeah. yeah and the, uh, the shareholder activism is a really interesting kind of topic in general. I think uh, most people know very little about it usually gets to the headlines only if somebody wants to, I don't know, break up the company or or aggressively take a, take a stake in some company and then have some major changes happening. But the, you know, this kind of uh, maybe sometimes more quiet influencing from the investor side, it rarely gets the headlines. I think it's it's true because you said it right. Shareholder activism is associated with barbarians at the gate. You know, there's yeah. a great book from the. 80s about how just these private equity funds would buy out gigantic stakes in companies and then just fire everybody, cut costs, and then shareholders make a a killing. But in the new world, activism needs to think a lot more broadly than just shareholders. It needs to think about consumers, about employees, about the supply chain, about what governments are saying, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's, it's gaining size more and more. And, you know, the more of us that do it, the better. Of course. But this kind of the green investment activism, I mean, you mentioned that in the, in the UK, you know, one of the NGOs was put together, put together a coalition of you guys. But is there some kind of the more collaboration going on in this field? I would assume that there is a lot of the green investors popping up everywhere. You mean more coalitions like like this? Yeah, all the kind of I don't know free collaborations or something. Because I'm sure you know across Europe there is a bunch of people who have some money to invest and would actually you know like to change the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, 
I guess the, the challenge, so it's definitely happening, but the, the challenge is a lot of people don't know how to or, or feel powerless, mm. right? So part of our goal is to, to make you feel that you do have the power, that this is, there's, this is um, democratized, so you have accessibility uh, and that your money is doing something good and, and helping make this change. So um, more of these coalitions are indeed popping up. You have several now in the United States uh, as, as well. So, and um, the companies or, or these corporations, they, they certainly listen. They certainly listen because they also don't want the bad press either, you know? Of course. <laughs> who, who, who would in a way, right? Yeah. Um, but the, the kind of the green, investment, uh, green investing scene in general, um, we've seen the, uh, the markets crash starting from last year. Uh, how do you see this impacting the kind of, I don't know, the, the overall green investment world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so listen, the, the, there's the good and the bad from, and, and last year is, is a great example. So you had many years where the oil sector was doing poorly relative to, to the markets, but last year it just rebounded massively. So we got acknowledged that in 2022, the best performing sector were oil and gas stocks by far. But for all the bad reasons, it happened because a war broke out. It happened because energy prices went through the roof and, you know, people couldn't pay their winter bills. Um, uh, you know, inflation, is, it became a huge problem. So I think what's going to happen now is... Uh, War is horrific, and the people of Ukraine that are directly affected or indirectly affected, this is horrific. So, so I, I definitely don't want to discount that. But this war has taught the rest of Europe that energy is now a matter of national security and that you can't depend on foreign states like Russia to supply the, 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 the oil and gas or even the green energy. China controls basically 80% of the solar panel market, the you know, um, uh, electric vehicle batteries, things like that. So it's like we can't depend on, on, on foreign countries for that anymore. So let's bring more of that energy production that's green into our own countries so that we don't have to worry about both the environment and about uh, energy security. And you're seeing a lot of that. Like here in Estonia, you're seeing a lot of new wind uh, parks being built. Um, you're seeing, uh, uh, yeah, a, a lot of permits to for renewable energy being issued fast and approved. Because historically, part of the problem has been as well that governments have been very slow in approving new solar parks. And, you know, wind, and, and, and so I think that has been a big complaint from the private community. But that's changing. That's changing. So I think there, there, there is going to be um, a much greener future in that sense as we, we figure it out that we need green technology and source locally. Mm. At the same time, looking at the IPCC and the, all the kind of climate change reports, it, you kind of start to feel that you know, the change might be in the air, but it could be a bit too late. It's, it's slow and it's, um, it's, it's sad, especially that the war also brought other negative consequences in the energy sector where companies that or countries that don't necessarily have access to oil and gas anymore were shifting to coal, right? Which is even is the worst polluter of, 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 of all. 
Um, but there's an acknowledgement that, that it's bad. And I get encouraged by, by China. Like the fact that China is on board with the Paris Agreement. And I always think to myself, you know, China, it doesn't, it, it, it is not held accountable by its people. It doesn't care what the rest of the world thinks. They're not doing this out of politics. They're doing it because they know it's a problem and they're scared probably. So, so I see um, a lot of future in, in that sense um, that, you know, countries like China, India, the U.S. and the, the EU, which are in essence the four biggest emitters, that they acknowledge that, that greenhouse gases are a problem. Um, in, in the U.S., it's a bit more fragmented. It's gotten very political, unfortunately, but I'm really happy that the, the current government got to pass a huge green package, which is um, great. What's a bit heartbreaking is to see companies <laughs> being kicked out of U.S. states because they're too green or too, too woke um, in, in some cases, especially when you, when you look at some of the big asset managers and, and banks that um, in recent years have gone a bit greener but not green enough to the point where, you know, people like us at Grunfin, we may say, yeah, you're, you're not that green. But then they're too green for, you know, sort of the ultra conservative uh, politicians. So they got, they're in no man's land. No man's land. And it's, it's very hard for them. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes right now. Interesting. Yeah. Really interesting developments. But uh, looking forward in, you know, 2023, what are your kind of big milestones or challenges? Um, as, as Grunfin, so the, um, what's really cool that we're doing this year is we launched a new line of business where we're offering Grunfin to businesses, to employers. So up to last year, basically, it was just individuals. Private individuals would come. They'd sign on super fast to our platform and um, begin investing their, their own money. Now we're going to businesses to say, hey, uh, you know, when you think about sustainability, financial inclusion is another topic, right? Like not enough people are saving, not enough people understand the benefits of compounding money in the markets over time, how that can grow your wealth over time. And um, so we're going to businesses to say, in addition to the salary that you pay your people, not in replacement of the salary, in addition to the salary, why don't you offer them a Grunfin portfolio so that people can then um, have access to, to, to investing? And this all came about, it wasn't even our idea. Um, another company called Fractory, they came to us and they said, hey, we really like what you're doing and we'd like to offer our employees child portfolios. So every employee that has a child, we wanna contribute every month to this portfolio and by the time they're 18 the mm -hmm. child gets that portfolio and we were like wow this is a great idea <laughs> a really beautiful <laughs> idea and really nice way to get the you know parents to work for your company yeah exactly exactly mm -hmm. so we we just um uh, went live with this we're talking to a lot of companies there's a ton of interest mm -hmm. and so hopefully we'll we'll get more of these um, business customers in the first half of of this year mm -hmm. Companies sustainability. I have to ask you, what's your take on ESG? So the, the problem with ESG is that it's it's such a wide 
term. It's so diluted. It so means everything, basically. It means everything. So, you know, for, for people who don't know exactly what it means, the E means environmental, the S means social, the G means governance. So you're talking about what you're doing in, on terms of greenhouse emissions to what you're doing in terms of regulatory reporting on your financials, right? And, and to gender equality and so on and so on. Exactly. So I, I, I love using Tesla as an example because you, you automatically associate Tesla that they're doing something well for the environment, right? They're, they revolutionized the, the electric vehicle machine. Awesome. But then when it comes to the G and governance, like Elon Musk this week went to court because there's a huge shareholder lawsuit because he promised via tweet in 2018 that Tesla was going to be bought out at a much higher price and it wasn't even true. Um, so like that's part of the G. So terrible score on the G. And then on the S, Tesla also gets a, a poor score when it comes to like employee rights or whatever. Rights yeah. and yeah, treatments and, and, mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. So it's just such a wide thing. And on the E, it's probably also kind of mixed with all the chemicals used in the batteries and uh, minerals. Uh, must be a rather mixed bag in a way. It, it is because then if, if you really look at the details, thing is it, it's, it's never black and white. It's so mm -hmm. complex that electric vehicles are awesome. But if, first of all, like where are you sourcing all the components like the battery and the lithium and the cobalt, right? Cobalt um, it comes from mines in the Republic of Congo and I'm pretty sure those mines don't represent, you know, the Western uh, standards uh, working standards, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and then, you know, we were talking about yesterday that in, in, in Estonia, you know, even if we electrify everything, our electricity still comes mainly from shale oil. So it's not necessarily just because it's electric, it means that it's good for the environment. So we also need to get our electricity green, green. right? And, and, and that is going to take a lot of work and, and investment. So this ESG, yeah, it's a, it's a shamazel of, of, of stuff. So um, that's why when we talk about climate, we've defined it as you have to be aligned to the Paris Agreement. There's nothing bigger. There's nothing more momentous. There's nothing where more countries are aligned. It's not perfect. Nothing is perfect. But wow, if we get to zero emissions by 2050, we accomplish something huge, which is save this planet. Mm. Yeah. So basically, when you when you make investment decisions, you don't read the company's ESG reports. Um, I do. <laughs> okay. I, I, I actually enjoy reading it. <laughs> um, uh, how are they? I mean, my assumption is that there is a lot of BS, but uh, but you know, from the investor's perspective. So the, the, you do find, um, depending on the company, you can find more BS than, than in others. I would say, and, and I'm making a huge generalization, but that the more detailed they are, the less BS, because you're like, wow, they really went deep. They, they, they really got good numbers here. Um, they're really saying things that, that make sense. Um, when they don't have sufficient numbers or examples, that's where you're like, oh, this, this looks like a bit shady. Yeah. But I, I enjoy reading it. I, 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 I learn a lot. I think it's, you know, one, one I was reading the Apple 
sustainability report because Apple is the biggest company in the world, you know? So, so what they do is important, whether, whether it's good or bad, they, they, they have a huge impact. And um, I was reading that, so they calculate their entire greenhouse gas emissions all across the value chain, right? From all their suppliers to their own operations, all the way to the end consumer. And that 22% of their overall emissions come from the consumer charging all their devices, right? So it's not the consumer's fault. We, we got to charge the devices, but the battery is not strong enough yet or, or long lasting enough where it requires so much electricity usage. And given that the majority of the electricity in the world still comes from fossil fuels, then you get those emissions. So that, listen, I don't know how accurate that is, but uh, you know, I think if, if, if Apple writes it in a report like that and the way they are so regulated and so in the press that I would figure they, they got some science behind it. And it's an impressive number, man. 22%. It is. It is. Just think when you listen to this uh, podcast on your iTunes or the, or the iPhone, 22% uh, uh, of the Apple group carbon emissions or energy consumption is, co yeah. is coming from, you know, you, you kind of charging your phone. Amazing number. It's an amazing number. And I also like the consumer products companies and, you know, they, they calculate their emissions. Like if, if you're a company that produces laundry detergent, um, not only how do you produce and what chemicals you're using, but they're calculating what the, the amount of water and electricity that you as a consumer use in your washing machine when you're washing this, you know, or like ice creams that you see them outside in refrigerators and small shops, you know, like a lot of these refrigerators are owned by major companies. Well, that, those consume a ton of electricity as well. So it goes so far beyond. And then when you look at the supply chain that, you know, everyone is dealing with us small to the, to the big ones, it's, um, you want to be able to control more and more how much that supply chain uh, emits. So you got to take into account, you know, like how many suppliers do I have? What factories do they have? In what countries do they operate? How much can I influence? Can I help them? And I think the big companies have a huge responsibility to help the suppliers who don't have the resources or the know-how to become greener, you know, like help them build factories that are, you know, running on solar panels, you mm. know, help them find better ways to use agriculture so that the soil isn't destroyed and, and, and it therefore doesn't release as much carbon, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So it's, it's highly complex. And that's why I love it, because it's, it's, it's a very difficult subject. Mm. Uh, one side is the big global corporations for whom it's a really complicated subject in a way. The other side is financial sector, where they might be with their investments having an impact in companies everywhere, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a, the other kind of rather complicated calculation, I would say. When you started with the Grunfin ESG emissions through the ETFs and the shares you own in the different companies, that could be a rather complicated exercise. It is. It is. And, and you're right. And it's, it's, it's also about, so what are these companies doing locally? And you also want to make sure that they're just not green from that perspective, but also how are they treating their employees? You know, as I mentioned, you know, equality is another focus of ours. So we want to make sure that uh, a lot of these companies are 
good when it comes to um, that type of stuff, equal pay, good maternity, paternity leave mm-hmm. policies, um, a good representation of um, the workforce in terms of, you know, gender, um, nationalities, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. It is, definitely. Slowly starting to wrap up uh, the um, basically looking forward. So Paris Agreement, you think, is the cornerstone of actually saving this planet? It's, it's all we got. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hate to, to say it, but it, it's the only thing that we realistically have that has been approved across the world. There's nothing that comes close to it. And if we were to start from scratch, I don't know how the heck we achieve it. And then the other thing is we have the Paris Agreement. And scientists have agreed that this is how we save the planet. So let's do it. Let's, it's just a matter of execution. Let's forget about the planning. Let's execute now. And that, that's what we have to do. Good. Thanks. That's a good point to wrap up. Thanks, Alejandro, for joining. And guys, let's get out and let's execute on it. Cheers. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric Acid.